So today our reading is going to be from the book of Genesis, and we have two passages, one from chapter 11 and one from chapter 12. The first passage will be Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, and the second will be Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 9, and I'll be reading them from the New International Version. These passages will also be displayed on the screens behind me. So let's stand together for the reading of the word this afternoon. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 to 30. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. And in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 9, the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Richard. Beautiful. Am I coming through okay? Awesome. Sweet. Double thumbs up. Man, like a double rainbow. Ah, and uh, who managed to get their survey done? Show of hands. Yeah, wow. That's impressive. Go team. <laughs> That's not to shun anyone. It's just to celebrate the fact that, man, we just did a survey in church. Um, I think we need to just, like, distinguish the moments, right? Uh, some of you weren't here last week when we announced that we were doing a survey in church, and it's by no means usual. Uh, and so let's just take a moment. Um, why don't we just do 30 seconds, just silence, and just situate our hearts and our minds uh, to hear the scriptures and maybe perhaps even to hear God speak through them. So just, I invite you, close your eyes. Let's just take a moment and center our imaginations on God. Just let the city outside bustle away 
in the time that we've got left together, just find its place. I'll just invite you back with me. So nice to be in church this afternoon. It's so nice that it's not like a billion degrees in here as well, right? Um, If you don't met me, my name's Alex. I'm the pastor here at New Life Brisbane. It's an absolute delight to pastor this church. And if you've not met me, please come and say hi. I'd love to meet you, have a conversation, and shoot the breeze with you. But um, today we're talking about faith. Faith. By faith, we're introducing this series. And one of the things things you'll hear Christians talk a lot about is faith. You'll hear people refer to themselves, if they're in the church, as people of faith. And that raises a whole host of questions. The other day, I was having a coffee with a friend. Um, He runs a cafe in Stone's Corner. And uh, we were talking about faith and life. And this guy is by no means a Christian. And uh, we were talking about faith. And he just asked me the question, man, what? how do I get faith? It, It seems like Christians have this thing that no one else has. And I'm just really curious, like, how do I get faith? And when he asked me that question, it made me realize that actually there's a whole host of definitions of faith running around on a street level um, that if we're not careful and we're not constructive with or critical of, um, that we could find ourselves adopting without sort of any further ado. Um, I actually think there's three street level definitions of faith that run around on uh, the popular level. Um, It's a funny word, but here's three street level definitions. There's the charismatic definition. I've got these up on the screen. There's the charismatic definition of faith. And the charismatic definition of faith is, is the one that, you know, if, you, if you've been a Christian here for a while in your life and you grew up in like a charismatic circle or a Pentecostal church, faith is sort of talked about from the platform as this like emotional switch that you turn on when you walk through the doors of church. It's like you walk in and the pastor says up the front, hey, who's got faith in the building this afternoon? And just imagine like what that kind of communicates. Like it's sort of Christianese and we're used to it, but just think about what they're really asking. And to be honest, I actually don't know what they're really asking, right? It, it's this sense that, like, it's an emotional switch. We turn it on. It, it's, it's one definition of faith, and that's the charismatic definition of faith. You turn this switch on so that you have expectancy, and because of your expectancy, you'd sort of cash it in like currency, and God would move in response to your faith. It's the charismatic definition of faith. Not wrong, but a definition. Another definition of faith is what I like to call the creedal definition of faith, A lot of conservative Christians have this definition of faith. It's the sense that faith is just a bunch of, you know, ideas, and and you give mental assent to those ideas, and you have faith in those ideas. Uh, You think of, like, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the confessions that got developed in the Reformation at the turn of the 15th and 16th centuries, and people pride themselves in these circles, right, on having faith in those creeds. It's the creedal definition of faith. These kinds of people have the right ideas, but they might not necessarily live a righteous life. Creedal definition of faith. And the last definition of faith doesn't come from the Christian church, it comes from critiquers or critics of the church. And it's the definition of faith which says that Christians who have faith are crazy. Richard Dawkins, in 1992, he was speaking in Edinburgh Science Festival, and he gave this address, and he totally lambasted people of faith, and He had this to say, it's the quote on the screen behind me. He said, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. And what he was doing when he made that statement is he was attacking people 
who say things like this, oh man, I don't need evidence to believe what I believe, it just makes me feel good, or I just think it's true, and there's no real conversation to be had. And Dawkins would call this delusion. In fact, the book that he wrote later was called The God Delusion, which critiques people of faith for basically being crazy. These are different definitions of faith that run around on the street level. And here's my question, what is faith? How do you define faith? What does faith look like in your world? How do you conceptualize faith? And we're kicking off this series to ask that question, and to do that, we're going to be continuing through the book of Genesis. Last year, we started through the book of Genesis and went through chapters 1 to 11, and this year, we're going to be going through chapters 12 to 22. The book of Genesis, it's the first book in the Bible. It sets the stage for the rest of the Bible. And the first 11 chapters, they introduce us to the story of God and humanity, And the the next 40-odd chapters, they introduce us to the story of God and Israel. And it does this in chapter 12 and onwards by zooming in on one particular man. Many people will know here, regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, that the people around whom the Old Testament and the New Testament orbit is the Israelite people. And the father of Israel was a guy named Isaac. And the father of Isaac was a guy named Abraham. And in this series, we're going to ask this question. What can we learn about faith through the journey of Abraham? What can we learn about faith through the journey of Abraham? And today, as we look at Abraham's call in Genesis 12, I want to show us two things. One, the purpose of God's people, and two, the nature of faith. So first, the purpose of God's people. To see this, you need to back up and appreciate the narrative so far, right? See, the biblical writers, these guys are geniuses. They're literary sort of like Mozarts when they write what they write. They've got a bunch of oral tradition that they're working with, a bunch of texts that have been passed down to them, and they take all this stuff and they marry it together in this beautiful narrative which has tension and a whole host of other things. They weren't writing when they put the scriptures together. They weren't writing random stories that were unconnected from one another. They were crafting something unified out of a myriad of texts unique texts. And the best analogy I have for this is sort of like um, a quilt. Now, I don't own one of these quilts, but you know those quilts, like, particularly in like American Hollywood movies, like an older person makes a quilt that has a bunch of different patches, and they give this quilt over, and it's got like this big significance. Does anyone actually own one? I do not own one of these quilts. Okay, a few people, right on, sweet. It just means you've probably got good family that want to give you good gifts. Um, but these, they're like beautiful pieces, right? But what makes up these quilts is like, you know, you've got an individual patch that's got its own story to tell, that rests next to another, another individual patch that has its own story to tell, and so on and so forth, until you've got this beautiful, big art form, which is the quilt. And the point of all of them together is not just to have like a, like a what's the word, like a display of mess. The point of them together is that each with their own story would tell a unified story. And that's what the scriptures are. The scriptures are a collection of things woven together, things like history and poetry and mythology and even political philosophy, all woven together to tell this larger narrative about who God is, who we are, what went wrong, and what God's going to do to solve the problem. That's, that's the story of the Bible. And chapters 1 to 11, they set up this tension. In the beginning, God creates everything, the land, the sea, this plants, and, and as the crown jewel, humans, us, 
you and me, human, humanity. God creates us as the crown jewel of his creation, and then he delegates responsibility of creation to humans, and he tells them to inhabit the earth and to multiply, to take the project of creation forward. This is the vision with which the scriptures open up. But here was the catch. The catch was that their job wasn't just to multiply and grow in number and inhabit their land. The job was to be conduits of God's blessing to the rest of creation, living in God's presence, living by God's purposes for the shalom and the flourishing of creation. But as the story goes, humanity chooses sin and rebellion and themselves. And Genesis 1 to 11, which we looked at last year, tells story after story of how that original calling to be fruitful and multiply is upheld, but rather than being the means through which God blesses the world, humanity becomes the means by which God curses the world because of sin and decay. Let me put it like this. Rather than God administrating his peace through humanity, humanity administrates curse, death, decay, and chaos. And that's the tension with which Genesis 1 to 11 erupts. It's this incredible tension. All the right kind of momentum multiplying and inhabiting the land, but all the wrong direction, sin and not flourishing. And here's the question it raises. This is literally the question that once you've read Genesis 11, you should feel. What is God going to do to rescue the world? What a great question. What's God going to do to rescue the world? And strange as it is, impossible as it might seem, we encounter a man. God goes from the universal, humanity in general, to the local, Abraham in particular. And we meet a couple, Abraham and Sarai. These guys, they're from the east. They've got their own religion. They have their own land. But one thing they don't have is kids. Sarai is barren. And it's in this moment that the writer of the book of Genesis, he slows down. He takes the childbearing multiplication of, of humanity through chapters 1 to 11, and he brings it to a halt. Why? Because here's what he's doing. He wants to show that God's means of redeeming the world is through people. That's the point of the text we come to. So we read these words. Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Let me read verse 3 one more time. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Now, a bit more sort of like, not intellectual stuff, but just bear with me for a second as we unpack some context here, and then we'll jump into how this might affect our own lives. But scholars call this a fulcrum text, a hinge text. And the picture you should have as you read verses 1 to 3 is of a door swinging on its hinges, back and forth. And the imagery is that as the door swings closed on creation's brokenness in Genesis 11, the door swings open to God's mission of redemption. And it swings open that way. How? Well, by God calling Abraham to be the means through which the world will receive blessing. Now, that word in the Hebrew is barakah, blessing. And it is the most fully orbed, intense, 
definition of human flourishing that the Bible has. The picture is of someone who's at harmony with God, someone who's at harmony with themselves, someone who's at harmony with one another, and someone who's at harmony with the rest of creation. It's this beautiful picture. If you were to think, what does it mean to be human? This picture would answer it. Berakar. And it's what God longs to do for every human, to bless them, to give them harmony with him, harmony within themselves, harmony with one another, and harmony between them and creation. And here's the point of the passage. Here's the point of the passage. It's that people of faith are meant to be agents of that in the world. Real simple, but beautiful and profound. People of faith are meant to be agents of that blessing in the world. Let me ask you this question. What do you think of when you think of people of faith? Or maybe even like a more loaded question. What do you think our culture thinks of when they think of people of faith? You know, you read a news article, and it will often portray people of faith as like bigoted and hypocrites and sort of self-righteous. That's sometimes true, unfortunately. Other people will think of people of faith as those who, you know, they might say something like this. Oh, people of faith, they're just irrelevant. They do their thing in a building on a Sunday, but nothing that they do really has any impact in the world. They talk a lot about, like, creeds and how God wants to do stuff in the world, but whether they are agents of that themselves, that's an open question. What do you think of when you think of people of faith? And these these are critical remarks, I'll admit, but what do you think of when you think of people of faith? And here's what God says in this story. People of faith are to be agents of God's blessing in the world. That's why he calls us to himself. That's actually what election means. Election in the scriptures is not the story of God choosing individuals to himself. God can do that and he might. But the definition of election that you find in the scriptures is God calling people to himself that they be on mission for him as a witness to the world. People have a mission. God, you know, just think about it for a second, philosophically, right? God, God could snap his fingers and redeem the world right now. All that we were meant to experience in the Garden of Eden, shalom, flourishing, creativity, love, all those things, God could just take us back. But what's the MO of the God we find in the scriptures? He calls people to himself so he can call others through them. He uses people to get him there. God is ravenously passionate about blessing the world. And he does it sometimes himself, but he wants to mainly do it through people. That's God's means of mission in the world. And that's what people of faith are. So church, let me just call us to that this afternoon. In Christianity, we get so sidetracked by like a bunch of stuff. We let our gaze and our imagination just be like fixed on a whole host of other things. And you might hear me say, man, we're meant to be agents of blessing. Alex, that sounds too vague. It doesn't sound Christian enough. And I'd say, man, this is the vision of the scriptures. And blessing on one level needs to be vague in the sense that it allows us to think creatively in the presence of God about how he might want to work in the world. But then, too, it's not like God's left himself unspoken or without direction. And the primary place that we get a definition of what it looks like to bless the world is in the person and face of Jesus. So here's the question. Are we showing the world what it looks like to be in harmony with God? Are we doing that? Are we showing the world what it looks like to be okay with ourselves? To be okay with who we are, just in our humanity? and especially to be okay with who we're not. Are we showing the world that? 
Are we showing the world what it looks like to be at peace with one another? To let reconciliation not be a tag word or a tagline, but let, let it be the primary definition that shapes our relationship with one another? Are we, are we at peace with one another? And are we showing the world what it looks like to flourish in creation and to let creation itself flourish? That's the mission of God, at least the part of it that we find out through the story of Abraham. And we're called to be the ones through whom it happens. And again, I said it before, but Jesus is the prime example of what it looks like to live in God's presence and practice God's purposes for the sake of the world. I love what Teresa of Avia said. She said it like this. She said, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Your eyes are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good, and yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Now, I don't know what you came to church expecting to get a pep talk around today, but here's, here it is. Here's what the people of faith are called to be, a people of blessing. Harmony with God, harmony within ourselves, harmony with one another, and harmony with creation. This is part of God's mission in the world, and this is what God outworks in the call of Abraham. Second, we learn about the nature of faith. Um, Jump back into the story with me real quick. Abraham, he's got a decent life, right? Very decent life, very happy. Um, In verse 1, when God speaks of Abraham's family, it uses this phrase. It says, God says something like, hey, go from your father's household. And that phrase is a bit of a technical term in the original language. It referred to his extended family and everything tied up in that. The ancients, they had a way of life which we just like can't relate to. But it referred to everything in Abraham's life. So just picture this. Picture aunties, uncles, second grandparents, slaves and cousins. That's, that's what's pictured in father's household. Picture their wealth in like livestock and assets and all the things that are their means in the world. That's included in father's household. Picture their household gods. So you've got to remember, right, Abraham is not a Jew at the time. Um, he's the father of the Jews, but he comes from the east. And the east, they've got their own gods and they've got their own deities. And, and so we'd use a phrase, you know, in our lingo, uh, by which to say that Abraham was a pagan. He didn't worship the god Yahweh, the, the Christian god. Um, and included too is, is the possibility that he still could have kids. At the end of Genesis 11, we heard that Abraham's wife Sarai was barren. But in ancient Near Eastern cultures, there were actually rules that stipulated if you're married to a barren wife, that you still could, uh, and this is shocking, right? It was just a different time. But you still could have a child through a slave. And in fact, that's actually what happens with Abraham in the story later. Um, And so we get the tension of Genesis 1 to 11 that comes to a screeching halt with the story that Sarai is barren. But that doesn't mean that Abraham couldn't have had kids. It it means it was very possible uh, that the ancient Near Eastern culture that he was from made license for that. And so what what do we get? What do we get when we meet Abraham? We get a picture of someone who had land, security, stability, and spirituality. In other words, it was sweet. It was pretty awesome. But then he's approached by an unknown God with a very vague plan and a very big promise. And he calls him to up and to leave, to forsake his security and his stability and all that familiarity. And here's the question, what does Abraham do? Now, I'll tell you what I would do. 
Um, something I've learned in my time is like, you know when people say, hey, are you free on the weekend? And I've learned to respond to that question with a, not a yes or no, but why? You know what I mean? Or like when someone says, hey, I've got a favor to ask. I've learned that my, the first thing I should say is not I'm free or yes, it's what's the favor? <laughs> and right, like we do this. And I think it's, I think once you get to like 21, you're like, I need to do this. Uh, got to make sure I can say no to stuff. Um, Abraham doesn't ask this question, at least not in the story. God reveals very little. He reveals nothing. An unknown God with a very vague plan and a very big promise. And what does Abraham do? He doesn't say, hey, God, just like, give me a, you know, a blueprint or just a step by... N- nothing. Abraham goes. He ups and leaves. Now, as we unpack in this series, we're going to learn that Abraham... He's not like the model citizen in every area of life. The fact that he conscripts a slave to try and have a kid, it's morally neutral at best. The fact that later in the story we hear that Abraham sort of tries to sell off his, not sell actually, but sort of pass off his wife as his sister so he doesn't get in trouble with the Egyptian authorities. Again, morally neutral at best. I would say wrong. Um, But the writers of the New Testament, when they see Abraham's faith in this moment... Big tick. Huge tick. They froth this part of his life. Let me read from Hebrews 11. It says this, verses 1 1, 2 and 8. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. And here's the point I want to make about the nature of faith. Here's my definition, as simple as this. Faith is embodied trust in what we know. That's it. Faith is embodied trust in what we know. It's obedience to the call of God. And that's the sufficiently broad enough definition within which to make sense of my head, my heart, and my hands. But it's also specific enough to make you think, well, what do I need to do? Like, is there something that God's spoken to me that I need to respond to? Is there something that God's revealed about himself that I need to be obedient to? A lot of people will say, Alex, if you leave your definition of faith as as broad as embodied trust... Isn't that too vague? But the problem with that question is it, pr- it presumes that God hasn't spoken. It presumes that God hasn't revealed the way he wants us to live our lives. It presumes that actually we've got no words from God. But the God that I worship in the scriptures is perpetually articulate. He's always revealing himself. He wants that no one would be without knowledge of himself so they can respond in obedience and faith. Faith is embodied trust. It involves our head. It involves our heart. It involves our hand. Faith is Radical obedience to the call of God. Now, before, when I started this sermon, I unpacked some sort of like caricature definitions of faith. And I, I appreciate your grace when I did that because I actually don't think that any of them are entirely wrong, except maybe the critique at the end. I don't think any of them are entirely wrong. It's not that they're wrong per se. It's that if you were to reduce faith to any one of the definitions of faith that I showed you, you'd be in error. What do I mean? If you think faith is just a charismatic feeling that you need to turn on when you come to church... 
How many people rocked up this afternoon ready to turn that switch on? Like, I'm the pastor of this church, and sometimes I'm super pumped about church. Most of the time. But sometimes I'm like, man, it's been a big week. You know what I mean? And some of you here, you're like, man, I'm introverted, and church is a hassle every single week. People? Gosh. And so when the preacher gets up the front and says, hey, turn that faith emotional switch on, you're like, I just have no resource for that. If you reduce faith to something that's like an emotional switch that you need to turn on, you'll feel bad most weeks you come to church. You won't feel as Christian as you could. You'll feel unfaithful. Why? Because you've misdefined faith or you've reduced your definition of faith. What if faith is just a creed? It's about having the right ideas that you give mental assent to. Well, the cool thing about this is that you'll have the right ideas about God. And don't hear me shunning that. We love theology here at New Life Brisbane. We are creedal people. We follow the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. We find our faith informed by the myriad of confessions that were written throughout the history of the church. We want to be people of the creed. Why? Unity, blessing, power, walking forward in alignment before the face of God and the watching world. We want to know what we know about God. But if you reduce faith just to a bunch of ideas that you need to subscribe to with your mind, you'll have the right ideas but not necessarily a transformed life. Being an informed Christian is subpar to being a transformed life. And faith includes the creeds, but it's way more than that. And the last thing is the crazy definition of faith. Um, I think we can fall prey to this one, actually. Um, the amount of conversations I've had with people who say, man, I, I just don't think I could ever have faith. What they're saying when they say that is, oh, I've met a bunch of Christians who, like, they just, they turn this sort of, like, mental switch on, or they're not prepared to be engaged in conversations around questions of truth. Um, but 1 Peter, verses three, 1 Peter 3, verse 15, says that all Christians should be prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that we have. That, in other words, it commends thinking rightly and well about the propositions of our faith. And something I've come to discover in my studies, in my life, in my experience, is that faith is not a step into the dark. It's a step through evidence into the light. I love how Elton Trueblood, who was the chaplain at, I think it was Princeton or Harvard, and he put it like this. He said that faith is not belief without proof. It's trust without reservation. And isn't that beautiful? Faith is not belief without proof. It's trust without reservation. And the reason I zoom in on this last one is because I want to say, if you're here and you're new and you're thinking through faith, but you're like, I could just never have faith, I'll just say, man, ask the question. God's not shy from your questions. You're not asked to check your brain out the door of your Christianity. Come think. Come let us reason together. Let's discuss the ideas of the world and see what makes the most sense and think through how we might respond to what God's revealed of himself in the scriptures. Faith is not a crazy thing. It's not a delusional thing. It's not a step away from evidence. It's a step through it into the story that God has made us for. Faith is embodied trust. Embodied trust to what God's revealed. It involves the head. It involves the heart. And it involves the hand. My analogy for what this kind of faith is would just be like that of a chair. Right now, we're all sitting on a chair. And this would be my closing thought. We're all sitting on chairs. And 
you know, if I was to say, hey, tell me about the chair you're sitting on, you might give me like a bunch of facts about the chair. Oh, it's a wood, the angle with which the, the bottom rests on the back, I wish it was a bit wider because I'm a bit crouched forward, you know? And you'd say, look, I, it's, it's stained in mahogany, but it could be pine, I don't know. And look, there's leather, but it's probably faux leather. And you, you tell me a bunch of facts about the chair. And if you think that faith in the chair looks like just agreeing with the facts about the chair, You'll never sit down. You, you show your faith by taking a seat. You can spout all the facts in the world about God, about the universe, about life, about truth. But unless you live your life on the basis that Jesus is who he said he was, that the Christian story is the true story of the universe, unless you live your life on that basis and let it inform not just your mind, but your heart and your hands, and your work week, and your calendar, and the way you get out of bed, and the way you go to sleep, unless it informs that, then you might call it faith, but I think it's an unhelpful definition. Faith is embodied trust. It's whole life obedience. And so the question I have is, where's God calling you to be obedient right now? That is the key ingredient of the Christian life. Hearing and obeying. Now before I just unpack this really briefly, a little qualifying statement to everything I've said. One of the things C.S. Lewis said was unique about Christianity is grace. And when we talk about obedience in church, here's what we're not talking about. We're not talking about merit. We're not talking about earning God's favor or God's love. In the Christian story, you don't radically obey God to be accepted by him. You're crazily accepted by God because of his love and what he's done in Jesus. But that lights a fire in you. And all you want to do is obey after that point. Why? Because he's done so much. He's done so much. We're not talking about earning. We're actually just talking about responding. And everything we do as a response to Jesus is our faith. It's our embodied trust that he is who he said he was, that what he did on the cross matters, that when he rose to new life, he was offering it to us in him. Everything we do in response to that is our faith. And what we learn in Abraham is that we meet a God who calls each of us to leave something, something else aside to embrace his call in our life. And when we come to faith, we do that in a very general and big way. We leave aside our old life and we embrace the new. And my prayer is that each of us here this afternoon would be able to embrace that call, the call back to God himself, the one in whose presence we were made to live as humans, the one because of whom we've been given our commission as humans to be his hands and feet in the world. I pray that each of us would accept that general call. But my question for each of us this afternoon is, you know, there's a specific way each of us turn from something. And what is it for you this afternoon? In my experience, there's always something God's talking to me about. Not because I hear his audible voice, because I'm just going about my life and I realize that there's something about my life that 
actually just needs to be transformed by his love. And my question would be, what is it that God's calling you to leave aside right now? Maybe it's anxiety about the future. Maybe it's a particular sin. Maybe it's a habit that you just feel rocked by and you can't escape. There's always something that God's talking to us about. Why? Because this side of eternity, we're going to be just as broken as the Abraham guy we're going to spend the next five weeks studying. And there's always more of God to experience and there's always more transformation to have ourselves encountered by and there's always more obedience that God would invite us into. Not with an iron fist, but with wooing love. And so can I ask you to stand this afternoon? And as you stand, I just invite you to close your eyes. What is it that God's calling you to leave aside right now? Again, the writer of Hebrews would say that our call is to leave aside every weight and sin that entangles us. Why? Not just because it's bad and it harms us, but because God's calling us away from that to something good, something transformative, something that's going to be a faithful witness for him in the world. And here's the promise. That that which we say no to in this life pales in comparison to that which we get a yes from in Jesus Christ. It's all a shadow of that which is the true light in him. There's a missionary, Jim Elliott, and he had this beautiful phrase in his journal that was discovered after his life. He said it like this. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And church, just as the pastor this afternoon, I want to say, we would not be fools to give to God what we cannot keep in this life to gain what we can't lose in this and the next. We would not be fools for that. We'd be disciples for that. That when we say no to something in this life because God's calling us away from it, he gives us himself, meaning, purpose, life, fellowship, friends. He gives us a whole host of things, all because we responded to the call with obedience and faith. And so what is it for you this afternoon? As you contemplate, I want to pray, and I just want to invite us to worship. So let me pray. God, thank you that in Abraham, we get not just a definition of faith, but a model of someone who's broken, which frees us up to be broken ourselves, Lord. But Lord, you're calling us to radical obedience as individuals and as a church. And so I just ask, Lord, speak to us. Reveal to us that which we know to already be true. And invite us into the life that you long for us to inhabit. Because it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Church, let's worship together.